Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to take command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's Beat reporter Craig Hoffman. Take Command podcast from Odyssey Sports. I'm Craig Hoffman. That is Logan Paulson. Welcome into the show. And Logan, uh, this is this is a tough one, obviously, uh, doing a show as we record this on Tuesday, the day after uh, DeMar Hamlin goes down in the Monday Night Football game. Um, as of this recording, we obviously... Uh, just know what everyone else has known at this point for a little under 12 hours uh, that he is in critical condition. We have not gotten the hopeful critical but stable, uh, which is obviously not ideal, uh, but is also better than hearing bad news. So um, I guess, Logan, uh, off the top here, just say that we are going to talk about uh, the Commanders-Browns game, do our pretty usual Wednesday podcast, tape review, this, etc. But we're not doing that flippantly. Um, we're doing that within the context of this is a podcast and people are coming to this podcast not for perspective on a larger type of thing. You're coming to this podcast because you want commander's coverage and specifically you come to us because you want tape review on a Wednesday. And so there's nothing wrong with people for wanting that. Um, you know, but it also, uh, it feels silly and, and inhumane not to acknowledge that there's a larger context in the NFL right now that we are doing this within. And, um, it's, it's just scary, man. It's really, really scary. Yeah, it is scary. And, uh, you know, I think Ryan Clark, he was on TV last night. I think he put it like really eloquently, you know, like he, uh, Hamlin is like getting to live out his dream. You know, he's like, that's like the most exciting moment. One of the most exciting moments of his life. Monday Night Football, biggest game of the year, huge matchup. And, like, that's, like, the last thing on your mind, you know. But, unfortunately, that's, like, a very um, grisly kind of uh, byproduct of playing a violent sport, you know, like Shazier Everett, the kid from Buffalo who broke his neck, uh, you know, before I got in the league, so maybe 15 years ago now. Like, those things are always kind of looming, and you don't think about it because it is a kid's game. It's a fun game. It's, it's you know, you've been doing it for a very long time, but – these are um, these are very serious. There are very serious consequences to running into grown men full speed, and you know, like uh, obviously, what happened to him is like a one in a billion chance kind yeah, of thing. I mean, just something that's, you know, you've had some people say today. Sorry to cut you off, but just real quick, like, oh, this is a part of football. Like, this is not a part of football. Yeah. Like, this is this is something that has never happened to our knowledge within the hundred and three year history of the NFL. Um, and is that just lucky? Maybe, but if you know, if the odds are this low, this is this is an extremely rare occurrence and some confluence of effects that um, we've thankfully never seen and is, is not a part of the sport in any meaningful way 
Unfortunately, it still did happen um, last night, and now we are stuck to deal with the consequences. And there are plenty of other – that is not to excuse football, so to speak, because right. there, as you were saying uh, and letting you pick back up, like there are plenty of scary and terrifying and life-altering types of things that can happen and have been a regular part of the sport for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, kind of to your point, Craig, like, you know, when I got my CSCS, they talk about these uh, cardiac infractions like as a, as a part of the curriculum. And yeah, one of the CSCS things they, is a training certification for those that don't know. And one of the things they talk about is like, you know, watch out in baseball, watch out in lacrosse because of the acute trauma of the ball on the chest and an unpadded chest. Is, it's a it's a it's it's not likely, but it, it's more likely to occur in those sports. So they don't even mention it in the context of football. And I, so obviously a very, very unique situation with him. And like, uh, you know, regardless of how unique or, or special the situation is, like, you know, our, th- our thoughts and prayers go out to his family because like I can only imagine you know, watching my son or watching a loved one go, go like have that happen to them in nine minutes of the whole thing, you know? And, uh, I just think it's important that our thoughts are with him and his family. You know, he does have a charity, go check that out yeah. and, uh, you know, support that if, uh, if you feel that's appropriate, but yeah, man, um, thoughts and prayers go out to him and it, it is a, it's a scary thing and it makes you just unfortunately be very grateful for the things in your life and it shouldn't take an event like that, but, but it does. It does. And the last thing I'll say real quick before we get on to the the crux of the podcast, um, and I think this is actually a nice precursor as well to what we'll talk about, which is going to involve a lot of criticism of a football team that hasn't played very well. Um, and that is the same same thought that I am going to open my show with uh, today on the Team 980, which these are human beings that we're talking about. Yeah. And like, you know, it's easy for me to look across my screen to, to Logan and see a human being that, that's become a very good friend of mine and like former player. And like, yeah, of course, Logan Paulson, the human being, he's right there. The face mask is off. The helmet's off. Um, but so often, whether it's players and how we talk about them, oh, that guy's a bum. Like you wouldn't you would never say that to someone right. about pretty much anything else. You wouldn't say that if your plumber did a bad job. Um, you know, you, you just, you, there's, there's more of a human being and a humane element to that. And especially, um, frankly, as we've gotten into the YouTube space and a lot of comments are left about Scott Turner, um, you know, do I think Scott's particularly good at his job by an NFL standard? No, but I'm not going to sit here and call him a bum or like be disrespectful of the work that he puts in and the knowledge that he has and realize that if you ever get to the point that you're a coordinator in the NFL, you have an elite level of knowledge. Um, it's just a really hard task. And regardless of that, good, bad, or indifferent, like that's a human being there. And when we talk about fire this guy or whatever that guy, like that's someone with the family and this is their job and we should be cognizant of that and how we speak about it. And I realize it's easier as a fan to get into a comment section and let loose, um, whether it's behind a a pseudonym screen name or or your real names on there. Like it's easier to do that. Uh, We have one step closer and certainly for you as someone who's in the building, like have that step closer. And, you know, sometimes when people will say, well, Logan's not hard enough. And it's like, no, Logan's been there. and Logan's a human being who knows how hard it takes. And by the way, he's a good man. So like he should that that is a credit to you to, to keep that humanity. It's something that I try to do certainly as well. Um, in my position with my experience as a reporter and just try to be an empathetic like human being that doesn't mean we can't be critical it doesn't mean that we can't you know that someone should necessarily even keep the job uh in in a particular case we just shouldn't be flipping about it we shouldn't be flipping about firing people we shouldn't be flipping about throwing people out of the league um we shouldn't be flipping about any of it because these are these are human beings trying to do their job their job happens to be in a public sphere that there's a lot of commentary on 
And uh, I would just say that it shouldn't take something that happens like this, where the humanity is forced in, into our faces and kind of slaps us across the face and says like, hey, this is a human being, to remember that. We can be better at all times. And I will say we, um, the collective we, um, can be better at all times. And, and I hope that we can certainly do that. Um, and unless you have anything to add, Logan, we can kind of get to... Uh, no, I think, get that's, to- I think you said that very nicely. And, you know, again, just our thoughts are thoughts and prayers are with him and his family and yeah. you know hopefully you know obviously this podcast is coming out on tuesday or we, we record on tuesday hopefully we get some good news and uh you know all that good stuff so absolutely all right uh take man podcast from odyssey sports i'm craig hoffman that is logan paulson and with that, uh, you know, the thoughts with DeMar Hamlin and, and thoughts on the situation as a whole uh, said, Logan, let's get into the tape from Sunday. Um, obviously, an incredibly disappointing offensive performance. Now with the context of being able to watch the film, yeah. what stands out between coach, coordinator, receivers, running backs, O-line? I'm sure that there is plenty to critique on all levels, but like, if you try to circle the biggest issue with with why they only scored 10 points, what is it? Well, obviously, I mean, like the highest, the the lowest fruit to pick here is the turnovers, right? You just can't turn the football over three times when you're a team that's walking a very fine margin for error. I think to kind of get to delve into that concept a little bit more from a schematic standpoint, I really didn't appreciate the kind of segregation of the offense. You know, like these are our running formations. These are our running personnel groupings. And, you know, like – you know, since I talked to you yesterday and since we did the show after the after the game, I've had uh, the opportunity to talk to coaches and reporters. And apparently that's been a big criticism of Scott, like around the building just generally. So I think that that's also important to kind of recognize is that, you know, as frustrating as, as it is for fans, there are people in the building. There are people in the media that are very close to the team that also express that same frustration because you look at kind of the formula where they're the offense looks its best. You know, I, I call your attention to the first half of the Atlanta game, the first drive of the Atlanta game, you know, the touchdown to Bates in the Atlanta game, the second half of the New York Giants game, like where the offense is really clicking and rolling with a consistent kind of tenor. Like they're running the football, they're play-actioning, they're, it's out of the same formations. There's not this distinct kind of separation of we're running, our play, we're running, we're running the football and now we're passing the football. And when the offense is at its worst, you know, I look at the – the uh, the Dallas game, the first Dallas game, right? Uh, elements of the uh, the Detroit game, right? Like that's that's when they're that is when that's what's happening. There's a total segregation of the offense, and obviously, like I have to say this every time we talk about this kind of stuff. My bias is is one that comes from my experience, and that is a critical element of the offenses that I played in. And a bad offenses, in my opinion, don't don't integrate the offense well. And Scott didn't integrate the offense well. Yeah, and I I would say like sure there are different ways to do this in the NFL, but I think it's easy to say like that's not a bias towards your experience when this team has done that at times this year. Right. This yeah. team has done a good job at times of mixing it up and being unpredictable and using smaller personnel to run the football and using bigger personnel to throw the football and it was supposed to be a feature of this offense, not a bug. Right. It was supposed to be something that their versatility was something that made it special and made it so that 
they were more effective um, than they would be if they were just kind of running pretty vanilla stuff. Like they could be unpredictable with personnel and formations because of some of the unique pieces that they have. And instead that became almost a liability um, in not using that stuff and obviously becoming as predictable as you're saying. My question to you would be, how is there not some kind of quality control on this? Because it's one thing for Scott Turner to fall into this trap and to kind of get into a mode of like, all right, we're going to run. Let's get our run people out there. Run. Let's get our, all right, time to pass. Let's get our pass personnel out there and pass. Um, yeah. But at some point, whether it's the head coach, whether it's someone else, you know, Zampezi, the quarterback coach, Drew Terrell, the wide receivers coach, I don't need to name every coach, but like someone on the offensive staff down to the quality control coaches, um, how is there not a better process in place to prevent them from falling into that trap? You know, I don't know for sure. I haven't talked to the staff specifically, but from what I understand, like uh, like uh, Matt Scout, for example, is an excellent offensive line coach and knows more football than I'll ever know in my entire life and has probably forgotten more football than I'll ever know, right? He is a very bright dude that I have a ton of respect for. But what I've heard from people around the building, he is very – he's a very kind of yes man. Like the, the, the coordinator presents what he wants to do, and Matt Scout doesn't say – in the same way that Bill Callahan did, for example – like, we're not doing that because it's hard for the offensive line. Matzkow says, I am a good enough coach, and I will find a solution for that, which this, I respect. This is a good This is a good solution. I'll figure out how we execute it. Yeah, I'll figure out how we execute it, right? He, he is the guy who's the solution provider to the coordinator. And obviously, like with Bill Callahan, for example, um, he would come and he would drastically change the scope of the game plan, right? He would kind of say, we're not doing that pass protection because it's too hard. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. And – Obviously, there's disadvantages and advantages to both, but I think having a little bit of friction and a little bit of kind of dissenting opinion in the room, because I think Zampezi is also a very bright dude, but I also think he, at least in my conversations with him, strikes me as a guy who's very like, oh, yeah, I'll find a solution. I'll, I'll coach the quarterback up to get that done. It's not like, is that the best thing to do? Because, you know, they, they're very traditional. Like the off they, they defer to the offensive coordinator, which, right. again, there is advantages and disadvantages to that. But I do... I think if, again, if I was the OC, I would want coaches and coordinators who kind of said, do we really love this as much as we think? Like, think about, you know, the, the left guard here. Can he handle this protection? Can he do this in this situation? Right. Or well, what about this? It's not even that. It's like, yeah. hey, we're predictable here. Yeah. Like, how do you not have so, so a I guess defensive coach come in and be like, hey, man, like, you're running the ball out of all these heavy tight formations. Like, maybe, maybe mix it up. Yeah, I think that's one of the things, one of the advantages of a bye week or a short week is you do do a little bit of cross-scouting, but in a normal work week, you don't have enough time to do that. You're so focused on your side of the ball, right? And so I do think, again, like this is one of those things where, you know, you have a little bit of a different voice in the room, in the building, in that offensive staff room. We kind of say, do we love this as much as we think we love it? Can we get to some different passes out of this or some different protections? And I think that would probably be advantageous i think you know if in, in the context of this group now i've been a part of offensive staffs where everyone's got an opinion and like nothing gets done you right. need to have like a balance of both obviously so i think that to me is one of the things that sticks out it's like instead of being like hey we're, we're we seem to be running only out of these formations when we're prepping in the week can we get some passes in it's like guys are like i need to solve these problems to support scott's vision you know as opposed to getting a little bit more of a dialogue about it like I said, you can go either way. But I think that, to me, is something that I would look at if I was wrong, if I did want to keep Scott on as offensive coordinator. It's finding someone that can 
you know, stir the pot a little bit and challenge some of these assumptions and assertions. Um, and, you know, be the self scout guy, be the quality control guy, be that guy who's kind of like, Hey man, we got this crazy tendency here. Can we get that fixed? And, um, and again, like that's just making sure you get the right people and maybe changing the structure of that offensive room a little bit. Yeah. Um, all right. How did Carson play? Yeah. Uh, I mean, surprise, surprise, like not very well. I mean, <laughs> I think Carson would probably tell you that to his, to your face, you know, yeah, like I, Carson has said that multiple times. Uh, but yeah. I, I just figured I'd ask it open-ended, you know, cause yeah. sometimes, sometimes the tape can be, you know, Hey, not as bad as it, we initially thought, uh, or like, no, nah, it was, it was pretty, pretty, and, uh, and, pretty rough. And like, cause dude, you're talking about execution of throws, like obviously the ones into the ground, the ones four feet over guys heads, yeah. like. It was pretty bad. Don't don't yeah. need it. Don't need the tape to tell us that. But from even like really, I guess the enhancement of watching the tape is like from his decision making standpoint because that was the thing that we were all hoping had improved. And if it didn't, yikes! Right. Um, and that and that would help kind of evaluate was it the right decision that went poorly or was it uh, a misguided decision? And also, I, I will say this real quick before we get to the kind of the fuller answer of how did Carson play. Um, I've heard a couple of folks say that like he actually looked pretty good in practice. So it's just hard. Like sometimes you get in the game and you stink. Um, but he in practice last week, like obviously the San Francisco game was one thing. It wasn't quite as much prevent as some fans seem to think. Like yeah. it wasn't like they just dropped back the whole time. Um, there was they did bring some, some pressure. Of, yeah. Yeah. They, they did some stuff. Um, but ultimately in practice last week, it wasn't like he was throwing balls in the dirt all week. Right. Um, so when he gets out of the game and starts doing that, you're like, what is this? Where did this come from? And uh, obviously by then it was too late. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like a, as a performance coach, there is an element of like anxiety that comes with yeah. doing it in the, the game. Oh, Yerk's Dotson curve. Yeah. And I feel like in this example, like those throws in the dirt are throws he's made a thousand times, but you're just a little bit nervous, especially after the pick. Right. And even the first throw he has in the game is in the dirt is over William's head. And I think that gets in your, you know, you've been in, you've played sports. I've, you know, I've played for a long time. You make a mistake and it lingers in your mind and you're like, don't do that again. And it kind of compounds. Right. And I felt like there was an element of that to this game for him. He just kind of kept compounding mistakes and he went on the, obviously the long drive. I think he made some really nice throws, really good reads. You saw some of the things that you, you get excited about when you talk about Carson Wentz, but I think on the whole, it just wasn't there for him. And, you know, like even like, let's, let's look at that, that ball that he throws in the dirt, right? The first play of the game. Like if he completes that ball, it's probably a first down. You're probably at first and 10. And then maybe Scott gets into a different calling sequence as opposed to putting you on this, on this lower percentage quarter out versus man to man coverage. You know, like that's, that's an NFL throw. You should make that throw, all those kind of things, but at least you can kind of stay in the rhythm of your offense. You can stay in a rhythm as a play caller and he did that. He did that again when they're backed up. He missed the back, and that would have been probably a first down as well. He missed a couple of checkdowns on both inter- on uh, on both of the second uh, the the, Last the two second and third. Yeah, he he missed checkdowns like where he, the ball is just probably got to go there. And um, those are bad decisions. You know, those aren't aren't effective decisions. And understanding, you know, especially in the first half, how well how well the defense is playing, leaning on them a little bit. He just didn't do that, and I think. Uh, yeah, I can't say that he he did a great job outside of a couple of plays here and there. I, I do have to kind of acknowledge this criticism. You know, Miles Garrett came out and said, like, we knew we were going to get some opportunities for sacks and pressures because of the longer developing pass concepts. And that was true, 1,000%. So when I look at Scott and the offensive staff, 
when you're calling those longer developing pass concepts, not only are they longer developing in the in the in the in the plays that they did call, mm-hmm. they are lower percentage throws. Like they're way down the field on like go balls and posts and deeper stuff. And I know, you know, there's this expectation that you make those throws, but you don't kind of you don't like traditionally live with those throws. Those are, you know, five to seven plays of your offense. It's not every time there's a third down we're running super deep. And so like, for example, in the, in the third quarter, um, Terry smokes ward on a quarter post and he's wide open. And you're like, wow, why is the ball going there? But Carson's getting sacked, right? He can't get the ball out. He looks like he's flummoxing around and, you know, like the backside's a 20 yard dig. The, the number two receiver to the backside has a go. It's just like these long developing concepts. So, I think one of the things that we talked about yesterday on your show was this idea that, you know, like is Scott supporting him with the play calls? Like that was the, that was the assumption that we had. And, right. you know, I understand game flow dictates certain things. I understand all that, but I just felt like you, you, you put this man out there. Like it wasn't like put him in the kiddie pool. It was like in the deep end, two hand shove. Let's see what happens. And right. And that's the problem is like, he was put out there under the guise that it was going to be Carson in the Taylor offense. And that would help him be the best version of himself. And this offense be the best version of itself that you could get all the stuff that Taylor had, which I think was misguided. Certainly in hindsight, looks very misguided, uh, but also get the upside of what Carson had. And, you know, I, I think it's also something that, that folks need to understand is like, we talk about some of the, the throws available with Carson in there versus Taylor. We're not just talking about 45, 50, 60-yard throws down the field. We're talking about being able to throw an out route to deep right from the left hash. Yeah. Like That throw is not available to Taylor, and it's not available to most quarterbacks, but it's available to Carson. The problem is, is Carson throws it sometimes. And um, yeah, sometimes it works, and, and sometimes you're like, no, oh, man, oh, yeah. come on, man, just... The, the, the five yard over the balls where that ball needs to go. Um, and what's what's interesting is it seems like Scott was kind of thinking like, oh yeah, these throws are available. Let's throw let's call them right. all the time. And it's like no one does that. They don't do that with Rodgers. They don't do that with, you know, any other quarterback with any kind of arm strength. Like Mahomes isn't doing that. Think of yeah. when you watch Patrick Mahomes play quarterback. That ball gets out so fast all the time. Right. And then if it doesn't, he starts scrambling around, and that's when you see some of the bigger plays down the field. But even deep stuff tends to happen in rhythm. Like, I mean, think of think of the touchdown to Diami in the Tennessee game, not necessarily the super long bomb, but the the slot fade. That ball's out quick. Yeah. And, and deep plays can happen like that on a regular basis. And then obviously you also have the concept that you don't need to throw the ball 60 yards to get a chunk play. Um, and that's, that is where I think they overrated that element of Carson's game a little bit. And when I say they overrated it, like they overused it. And Scott yeah. just like couldn't help himself in calling that stuff when very clearly the best path forward with Wentz was to run an offense similar to what you're running with Taylor, which is where, by the way, Wentz was successful last year with Indianapolis. And there's a, there's, I've said this before about Scott. And again, I am saying this very much in a professional, like criticism, not as a person. I don't know Scott Turner as a person at all. Um, he seems very cordial at the podium and all those kinds of things. No idea what he's like away from football, whatever. But there's an arrogance to him as a play caller um, that I think is 
has come up a lot this year. And again, that's not to say he's an arrogant person who thinks he's better than anyone else, but there is like a, this is going to work because I know it works on paper Right. to some of his calls that just belies the reality of his offensive line, his quarterback's decision-making, his quarterback's accuracy, and the general game flow and whether or not that play has been actually properly set up by the success or failure of the rest of the plays that he's called to that point. Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a really interesting point. Like, uh, you know, like he, on the, on, the, on the last drive of the game, they're kind of calling this like pylon concept or what I would call pylon. So you run a quarter by number two, and then you run a deep quarter, like a super deep quarter, like run into the front pylon of the end zone, no matter where you are on the field. So it, it almost looks like a go. Um, just the angle is a little different. And they they called that play, I think, two or three times in the last sequence, and it's open, right? It's it's open, mm-hmm. and but like that is a tough throw to make. It's very very tough. You've got them at like a full slot split, right? So one of the things that I also would like to call attention to here is in other offenses I've been in, you throw that route off of play action because mm-hmm. the protection's better. The timing's better. The receiver can kind of inside stem, work vertical, get get out. They're running it as like a drop back concept, which I I don't watch every team in the NFL. Let me just be frank with that. But I don't see a lot of teams doing it as a drop back concept because it's the timing and the spacing gets really tight to the sideline. If you're asking the quarterback to throw a ball 60, 60 yards in the air for a completion, and you do that twice. And I think if if, if the fans remember, it's the one where – Carson steps up in the pocket. Sam Cosby pushes. I think Clowney passed. He steps up. There's a huge void. And then Carson kind of javelins the ball to Jahan, and it either like one bounces or hits Jahan like right in the hands, and it's right on top of the ground, right? Right. And that is the pylon concept. And even with this kind of space of the pocket, like that throw is exceptionally challenging, and it's an exceptionally challenging catch because the receiver is running away with the ball. So kind of to your point, like on paper – this might be open, but what is the actual probability of the receiver right. catching this ball before he runs out of bounds, given the split that he's at before the before the ball is snapped? And what is the chances that the quarterback makes this very, very challenging throw? Because another thing to think about, it's always easier to hit a receiver if they're coming to you, right? Think about like a dig across the middle, like they're coming into your vision. They're not running away from you. That's why like corners and stuff tend to be a little bit dicey because like you need a lot of reps to get good at them. That's why the the first the second interception to Curtis is a little frustrating because he's running away from the quarterback almost right in front of him. So mm-hmm. he, how deep is he? There's no angle for the throw. It becomes really really challenging. And so that's kind of what, to your point, I think, it sticks out is those are that might work, right? You draw it up. Oh yeah, right. that's a good idea. Possible but, and probable are two different things. But. That's hard on the quarterback. That's hard on the pass catcher. That's hard on the O line. And I, I, and I would have to imagine there's easier ways to get to that stuff, you know. And I look at other offenses that those concepts are run, but they're run in the context of a different protection, a different play pass, a different boot action. Like it's all designed to make it easier for the thrower and the pass catcher, as opposed to more challenging. Yeah, and, and I think what results is like this very disjointed, no rhythm offense. And that was something that was so jarring in the Green Bay game when Taylor took over, was all of a sudden the offense had a rhythm. Right. And that was something that, by the way, didn't really leave even when it became less effective. It felt like the offense was in rhythm. It just wasn't good. 
Like it wasn't productive. That's a great point. That's a great point. Oh, okay. I kind of get how this is supposed to work. God, I wish they would do it better. Oh, son of a gun. They got a holding penalty. Oh, they got a minus two on a rush. Like, oh, Taylor can't really drive that throw. It's incomplete. But it felt like there was a rhythm and a purpose to it. And with Carson from preseason through those first six games to, and basically all of those first six games, like there were stretches where it worked. And maybe I guess the second half of Detroit, it felt a little rhythmic at times. But even in Jacksonville, it's like, okay, that was nice. How sustainable is this? Right. And then you get to Taylor, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this looks harmonious. And it was so disjointed on Sunday against Cleveland. Um, Even that 21 play drive, like didn't, he was like, wow, we're still going, huh? Like it didn't, it didn't feel like a lot of high leverage clicked on. A lot of third and longs, a lot of tough throws, like. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't good. Um, It's, you know, but as as we said the other day, I think we said this on the the radio show segment, uh, which by the way, if you're listening on Take Command uh, and you you missed that, uh, we put it up as a bonus episode in the Take Command feed as well. Uh, Shout out producer Matty Bo for that one. (laughs) Uh, But he, uh, you know, if it's a 21 play drive by nature, it wasn't great. Right. Like you just, you just got lucky enough a bunch of times, which is why you yeah. never see him. If it had been great, it wouldn't have taken 21 plays to, to cover that amount. Of